The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about building bridges locally and globally. And we are sitting here in the Sheraton Hotel in New Orleans, and we have this field interview, and I am sitting with four brilliant, gorgeous professors right here. And uh, I'm going to start with Eben. And Eben Weitzman, why don't you tell us about your program in Boston and just give us an overview. Sure. Well, thanks. And hi. Hi. Um, the program is the Graduate Programs in Conflict Resolution at UMass Boston. Uh, we're part of a, a larger department, which is the Department of Conflict Resolution, Human Security, and Global Governance there. The conflict resolution programs have been around since uh, 1985. Uh, David Matz, who's here with us today, founded the programs uh, back then and led them until just a couple of years ago. Um, we have a master's and a graduate certificate in conflict resolution. Students can choose to specialize, do a concentration in organizational conflict or international conflict. Um, and I'll just say that one of the things that's been really important uh, for us in, in the way that we teach and in what we do with the students is to try to get students involved in real world projects. There are real limits, as you know, to learning conflict skills in role plays because role plays are cold and yes. conflict is hot. Yes. You know, and so we look always for ways to get students involved in real world stuff. And what we're doing today was talking about some of the projects that we've got going on out in the field, around the world, uh, dealing with some really contentious conflict issues and bringing our students with us and, and engaging them in doing the work with us so that they can learn in the field. You know, I started mediating in 1985, and I wish that I could have gone to your program, but it wasn't even in existence, you know, when I graduated law school, and they weren't teaching mediation at my law school, they weren't teaching negotiation, and look how that field now has really grown, and what the wonderful things that you're doing, it's amazing to me. Yeah, well, you can come on back. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't. I, I love Boston. Okay, so so let's talk now um, with Rosarda. And Rosarda, why don't you introduce yourself? And I just want to tell you, I was so impressed with the program that you have and all the great work that you're doing. I I was so thrilled to be able to sit in on this program that these professors put on just a few minutes ago. So tell us about yours, and all the programs sound great. Thank you very much, and thanks for having us here. 
Um, so I am a faculty member in the conflict resolution program at UMass Boston. Um, I teach courses in um, reconciliation, uh, cross-cultural conflict, uh, conflict theory. Um, and uh, I'm a social psychologist by training, so I really look at um, why uh, people commit acts of violence and uh, why they support violence as a way to uh, address conflicts. Um, and I'm really interested in um, understanding this issue so that we can use this knowledge to prevent further conflict and to promote reconciliation. Uh, so part of my uh, more practical involvement is um, in uh, Great Lakes region in Africa, where I work with an organization that produces uh, radio reconciliation programs in Rwanda. Uh, it first started in Rwanda in 2004, um, and then uh, in, it extended to Burundi and to the Democratic Republic of Congo, particularly Eastern Congo, where the violence is still ongoing. Um, so these programs are um, the, the, there are many different types of programs uh, that are produced, but the flagship, the most significant program, is soap operas via radio. Um, the soap operas are based on a fictional story um, of uh, inter-village inter um, conflict, and uh, these stories incorporate educational uh, materials from edu educational messages uh, from uh, our research and understanding. Uh, in intergroup conflict to really raise awareness uh, for the factors that, in, that lead to evolution of violence and even to mass violence and genocide. Uh, and the idea is that people will use this knowledge to resist the factors that influence them or that, you know, manipulation by leaders or by, you know, various groups uh, to either commit acts of violence or to remain passive when they see such acts being committed. Um, so this is the bulk of, of our work there. Uh, the programs are extremely popular in Rwanda. 80 to 90% of the population listens to the to this soap opera. Um, in Burundi and in Congo as well, more than 60-65% of the population listens. And we have some indication that um, it has also a positive impact in people's uh, attitudes toward each other and in their behaviors in, in groups. I really love what you said that you get all this great feedback, you get letters, and why don't you talk right. about that because I mean that shows how impactful it really is about right. some of the letters you were telling me about. Right, every every week, so the show is a weekly, uh, it's a weekly show, um, and every week uh, there are hundreds of letters that are written by, uh, by people and are sent to the organization, and hundreds of phone calls as well. Um, and these really, in these letters, uh, really, uh, the listeners really engage with the show, and they really own it. In, in various ways, they really tell us about how that uh, the show has affected their lives, um, how it, it tells a story about their own personal lives or about some personal change that they have gone through, how it has inspired them, for example, to, um, uh, to organize a youth group, let's say, in, in their community and to help others in need, for example, to build a house for uh, some, some victim uh, family in need. Um, and many, some write, you know, some write to us telling us, you know, what should happen in the story, giving <laughs> advice. Giving advice, I love the it. characters, <laughs> especially for the negative characters, uh, telling them to change, you know, the, their way of thinking. Yeah. Um, so uh, it has been, it has been great. That's wonderful. Great. All right. So let's talk to David. David, tell us about. Well, you were the one of the original. You were the original leader of this uh, program in, in Boston, right? That's true. We started the program in the middle 80s. 
um, and it's now gone a long way. Uh, the work that I've done uh, has been with, uh, a lot of it has been in the Middle East with the Arab-Israeli conflict and I've done a fair amount of re uh, research, teaching, um, and one thing I've done is work with an outfit called Neve Shalom Wahata Salam, which is an Arab-Jewish village, uh, an intentional community. They came together for the purpose of living together and demonstrating that it could be done, and it's been very, very successful for over 30 years now. Um, and they have many interesting parts to the village. They have a, a binational, bilingual school, uh, K through six, for the kids of the village and then for uh, towns and communities around. They have over 300 kids there. And it's a very interesting, very successful school. Uh, they have a uh, spiritual center and they also have a training center called a School for Peace, which has trained over 50,000 Arabs and Jews in a workshop model, a dialogue model, uh, which started looking a lot like a lot of other dialogue models which are very powerful and deal in uh, helping people tell their story, be heard telling their story, uh, de-demonizing the other, humanizing themselves. Uh, but they've evolved that methodology to include something that, at least in my knowledge, is unique. And that is that they've developed uh, a way of bringing the power imbalance that exists in the world around the village into the dialogue. Uh, and it's not just that they talk about what's happening outside, but they actually enact the power imbalance in the room uh, and make it work. So it's a very powerful uh, process, a very interesting one. The village in the last few years has been interested in what the shorthand phrase is scaling up. In other words, it's one thing to do a lot of grassroots work, but they'd like to see it affect the whole society and, of course, the leadership of the society. And they've done a number of things, run workshops for journalists and things of that sort, and now they want to start a college, a, a graduate set of graduate programs. Um, and uh, I'm delighted that uh, our university, UMass Boston, and our program are working closely with them to help develop that. That will start with us having a satellite campus of our own program in the village. So our program will be offered in the village um, as a parallel to the one we offer in Boston. Uh, and that will lead, we hope, over three to five years with the village starting its own program, which will be different, which will evolve and be more reflective of the values of the village, uh, the location of uh, where the conflict takes place. and if things go as we're currently planning, we'll bring students from all over. Darren, whom you'll hear from in a moment, works a lot in Nigeria, and we're talking about Nigerian students coming for the program, as well as students from other parts of the US and Europe. So the goal will be to have as much of an international student body as possible, uh, but have it based in the conflict that's there so they all can learn from each other, both about conflicts elsewhere and conflicts in that spot. So, David, what about the kids that are growing up there? It's been there, you said, 30 years. So, mm -hmm. so what do they see about the little kids growing up in this kind of a, an environment? It's a great question. We're just beginning to learn, as you say. We're getting kids now who are in their 20s. Um, and a number of them want to move back into the village, which is to say not stay with mommy and daddy, but have their own place and their own family and create their own lives in the village. And that's just beginning to happen. Uh, there is research being done on exactly the question you're raising. What's the effect of growing up in such a place? Uh, we know just from looking around 
what kinds of kids they are, but the re research is really now just being done, so we don't sort of have a, a really formal, well-thought-out answer yet. Uh, but the village is very concerned about the second generation, yeah. both in a research matter, where do they go, and of course it's their kids, so they care about them as their children. Uh, but it's a tremendous amount of energy. There are several programs there now for the children of the village uh, to bring their perspective, because their perspective is different than their parents. Sure. Um, and interestingly different, not just because it's later in time, but really because they grew up there, their parents moved there as adults. Right. So it's a wonderful question. I'm afraid we have an inadequate answer. They have as much curiosity as you do about trying to understand the impact, except you can see most of the kids are connected to peace movement, uh, to pacifist ways of behaving, mm. and a number of them are living in the village to continue that tradition. So is there um, interfaith dating and is there interfaith marriage? What's going on like that? By, by and large, no. Hmm. Um, there's been, there, I think there's been one marriage, one um, Arab-Jewish marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, not. And the, the explanation, if it's really an explanation, has something to do with the sort of, you don't marry your sister. There's a uh -huh. very close relationship I mean, they, have, they make integration mean something we don't even mean in this, in this country. Mm. You sit in a kitchen, people pour through that kitchen, and they're Arabs and Jews, and it's all very mixed. And so there is a tightness that may have to do with maybe a kind of uh, taboo about being too close. I, that's a theory. I mean, we don't have any particular, we haven't studied that question, except yeah. we can look and see that the social lives don't go in that direction. Yeah. Uh, but why exactly? There's certainly nobody walks around and says you can't or you shouldn't, mm -hmm. but it, it has not played out that way. And, and another question I had is, have, have they done any documentaries or has Al, Al Gajira, wait, what do you call it? Al, Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera, Sorry, right? excuse my language. Al Jazeera, have they gone in to do any documentaries or 60 Minutes? I don't remember ever seeing it in 60 Minutes or anything like that. Al Jazeera, not to my knowledge. Uh, there have been programs, Bob Simon was there and, and did a piece. Uh, there's been a great deal of press coverage over the years, especially in Israel, but elsewhere. American press has come through. There have been various events. Uh, High-level people of certain governments in Israel find it very supportive. Other governments in Israel have not <laughs> been so enthused. Um, and when they show up for events, all the way from the prime minister will show up on the one hand to rock stars on the other, uh, that attracts the press. And so there's been a good deal of press of various kinds um, mm -hmm. over the years. No, it's wonderful. I think it's great. Good. Thank you. Okay, Darren, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us about your wonderful programs? Um, thanks, Murray. Um, Eben mentioned that one of our central goals of the, of the program is to get our students more field experience. Why don't you talk about what you teach, first of all, before you do that, okay? Sure. Uh, I teach um, a number of courses. We share uh, a lot of the burden of, of teaching many of the same courses. Uh, I teach courses in negotiation, cross-cultural conflict, uh, large group methodologies, um, trying to get uh, groups of over 15 or 20, you know, up to several hundred to come to common conclusions or decisions. Um, and uh, I also teach con uh, courses on international conflict resolution, and in particular about uh, democracy and conflict resolution in Africa. So a wide range of, of different coursework. And then, I mean, as I mentioned, um, I've also been uh, working uh, with Eben and others in the department to try to generate 
more uh, field experience for our students, and I'm directing a center uh, that's affiliated with our department, the Center for Peace, Democracy, and Development. And its whole goal is to have something like an in-house NGO or clinic where uh, students can check in, so to speak, and they can get project experience, and that can then um, filter back into their coursework and into the writing that they're doing. So we've got at least 10 projects right now around the world, in the Middle East, in West Africa, uh, Central and Southern Africa, uh, a project ending up in China right now, uh, parts of Europe as well, and uh, in Latin America, all of which are designed across a spectrum from conflict resolution and democracy building to get our students and faculty more engaged overseas and to have that channel back into the life of the department and the work that we're doing. There's one project in particular that I'm, I'm most closely um, interested in, which is in Nigeria. Uh, and it draws very much on two aspects of the work that I do, which is on uh, interreligious and interethnic conflict resolution activities and how this helps to connect with democracy building work. And uh, the project in Nigeria is an interreligious uh, Muslim Christian dialogue effort uh, through which we're supporting a local organization, uh, the Interfaith Mediation Center, uh, which uh, works right on the divide between Islam and Christianity. Nigeria is uh, divided 50-50 Muslim-Christian at the moment, and the communities that live along that fault line have had quite a bit of conflict that involves religious-related issues in recent years. So we've been supporting that organization and the efforts that they're doing to try to foster dialogue across those divides. Talk about that pastor and that Iman. That was that's so fascinating. I, I love that story. Well, we've been really privileged to work with this organization, and at at, at the center of it uh, is uh, their their. Uh, fondly called the pastor and the imam, uh, uh, Pastor James Wuye and Imam Muhammad Ashafa, who were sworn enemies um, in their youth. Um, radicals on both sides tried to kill each other on several occasions. Uh, the pastor lost his hand in one exchange. Uh, the imam lost his brother in another exchange. Uh, the two of them later reconciled and formed a peace-building organization right there on the fault line. Uh, and have since uh, devoted their lives to trying to build Muslim-Christian understanding. Uh, and they work all across the, the Middle Belt region in Nigeria. They've also been invited to work in other countries, in Africa and, and elsewhere. Uh, and much of what they do begins with telling their own story. Yeah. They talk about the path that they have walked, the difficulties that they have faced. And by virtue of being religious leaders, they bring a certain status and religious authority uh, in addition to just the, the, the moving uh, nature of what they've experienced to try to help folks uh, in, in that take part in their processes uh, to move beyond that stuck feeling of grievance, of anger at the other side. Particularly deeply traumatized populations, it's really hard to move to that point of being able to actually talk to the other side. And when you look at two individuals who have suffered like they've suffered, but yet still been able to reach across that divide, uh, can really help to break the ice and can help people try to say, well, maybe if they can do it, so can I. It's all about forgiveness, right? It begins certainly with forgiveness, so that's a long road. Um, yes. And uh, I would say maybe it ends with forgiveness, but begins with simply a willingness to open and to talk and to, to listen to the other side. And mm -hmm. that listening can take, so, can take so long just for, uh, for one side to be able to open up and to say, you know, okay, I'm actually willing to listen to hear your story without, you know, telling you all the grievances that I've experienced. Um, and they help people walk that road yeah it's it's just amazing 
Let me just go back to um, Evan and talk to us a little bit about what you've done in the schools um, in Boston. You, you talked a little bit about some of the local programs you've done in Boston, too, right? Yeah, with gangs and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about what you've done? Look, you're... Okay, now I'm sorry, David. That's really David. Let okay, David, David we'll, we'll go to talk a little bit about that. I just wanted to talk a little bit on the home front as well. Right. Um, there are, every, every city in the country, of course, has problems of, of uh, youth gangs, and Boston is no exception. Uh, Boston has a very fine program uh, called the Street Worker Program, in which um, people who have had, not necessarily gang experience, although some have, uh, work very much with these kids and basically make strong connections with them and try to lure them away from at least the most violent parts of gang life. There are some aspects of gang life that actually are positive, although it, that's not what makes the press. That's not what we all read about. But it, it doesn't pay to quite say, you know, we want to destroy the gangs. But it does make a lot of sense to try to deal with the violence and, and the right. destructive behavior that goes on both within the gangs and between the gangs. And so the street workers work at that. And I've worked with them because a lot of what they're doing is peacemaking. And so we know something about that. And I do, some tra I do a lot of training in mediation and mediation skills. And that's what I've been working with them on, on teaching them mediation skills. Interestingly, I started by asking them to just tell me stories of their conflict and how they handle them. And the first thing I discovered was they're very good mediators. <laughs> So the notion that I'm going to come train them seemed to be, I had to revise that because they really do know. They don't have the labels, they don't have the vocabulary, but they got the skills. Right. And so what was important was to identify a few of the things they didn't have and focus in on the really the rather sh small list of contributions I could make. It's a very skillful group of people. It was enormously impressive to work with them and see, first of all, how hard the job is and how much they really do understand about peacemaking not only with mediation, but with many other skills as well. So it's been a great honor, frankly, to be as close to these folks and see them work up close as it's been. Well, you guys are doing great work. So all of you are really wonderful experts dealing with conflict both on an individual level and the group level, community level, country level. But let's talk about the, the nitty-gritty of my audience that's driving by or the students that are in their dorms when we deal with conflict we we all need advice so i'm just going to ask each one of you to give a little tidbit of advice before we end is that all right yeah all right so let's start with rosarda um well i um i personally believe that um self-reflection and uh, in a way uh, self-criticism uh, as a skill is particularly important i think both at an interpersonal and also intergroup conflict um, conflict generally has at least two parties um, so acknowledging one's own role in the conflict and taking responsibility for one's own action is uh, an, an extremely important step I think we have uh, immense kind of denial mechanisms and justification mechanisms for uh, like justifying and legitimizing what we do um, and why we did it, but uh, we avoid taking responsibility. So I think, you know, if people try to do that a little bit, a little bit more for whatever part they have in the conflict, uh, would change uh, the root of the conflict. Right, just analyzing what part of it is us that's 
right. making this continue. Right. Great. Thank you, Rosardo. All right, Evan. So I guess I would build on what Rosardo was saying and, and to take that to the level of when you're trying to help other people who are in conflict. And there's a fundamental truth that when we're in conflict ourselves, we're never at our best. I mean, most of us don't come off so well when we're <laughs> deep in a conflict. We're, we're not our best selves. And it's because it's really, really difficult. And so when you are trying to help other people and you're seeing people who are not behaving the best they might, it can be hard sometimes to figure out what it takes for them to move forward. Um, the kind of internal work that Rosardo was talking about is, I think, essential for the person who wants to act as a, as a professional, who wants to try to help. You need to have gone through the process of letting go of a grudge, of doing the kind of reconciliate, what the Darren story about the imam and the pastor, mm -hmm. what they were able to move beyond to become, I mean, the two men are joined at the hip now. They go mm -hmm. everywhere and do everything together. To have gone through, even if it's a, a small kind of a transformation in your own life, so that you know what it means to give up a grudge, so that you know what it means to move beyond, you know, I've sworn that I'm gonna get that guy. What it means to let that go and move on, you have to have made that shift yourself in order to be able to understand how to help other people do it. So we need to walk our walk as well as talk our talk. Sounds now. great, thank you, Evan. All right, now we got Darren. Thank you. Well, uh, just to add to what Rosarta and Eben uh, said, with, with whom I'm in complete agreement, is to say that, um, particularly with religious and ethnic conflicts, um, you need to be thinking, if you're going to go in to try to help, you need to think about your own role in those ethnicities or religions. What role do you play? Um, certain roles may be tremendously effective uh, in terms of being able to help people think differently. Um, you may bring a certain level of authority or credibility in your own community, in your workplace, depending on the sort of conflict you're thinking about. Think about your own role and are there, do you bring a certain status um, and do you have a story to tell, like the pastor and the imam or others, that can help people get out of themselves a little bit. Uh, the second thing to think about is that if you're not that person, um, and like Evan was saying, and, and Rosarta as well, is you know, sort of knowing yourself, if the answer is I'm not that person, then trying to find other individuals who have that sort of status within the religious or ethnic bounds that you're talking about, racial and so on. Um, there are a lot of people that have a certain level of authority or status. They can be coaches, they can be police officers, they can be teachers who have that, they speak with that sort of authority and can help to bridge the divides um, in any sort of process that you're interested in starting. Yeah, I think what you're talking about was um, when I, uh, the power of the pastor and the iman is the 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 credibility that they had, that, that people trusted them, and that they listened to each other, because listening is such an important skill. And last but not least, David. Okay, I would like to take Rosarda's comment in a slightly different direction, and that is one of the problems in, in uh, conflict is what we think of as tunnel vision. We tend to see things very narrowly. We tend to see them primarily focused on the other person is the problem. and what my bit of advice would be is to widen that perspective. And that includes certainly Rosarta's comment about including ourselves, not just the other person, uh, and perhaps a larger context yet. Uh, the, phrase, the phrase we use in our business is expanding the pie, trying to get more on the table, because the tendency in conflict is to put less on the table uh, and narrow things. So I would just argue for widening the perspective expanding the pie and looking for how can I do 
get what I need and you get what you need and how can we have a mutual gain rather than a win-lose kind of a thing so well you are also wonderful I'll have to come out to Boston and visit you all and you come out to beautiful Southern California and visit us how does that sound <laughs> okay all right first. <laughs> okay <laughs> all right thank you you're terrific thanks Mark. thank you it's about trust The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.